for the reading of from Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it always goes out and accomplishes its purposes. And we know that it will here this morning. So we pray that you would send your spirit and that he would work in our hearts to hear your word, to apply your word to our hearts and to do it in our lives. And we pray that all of this would be to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm thankful to be with you this morning. My wife, Christina, and I moved to Conway um, about six days ago, seven days ago now, last Saturday, eight days ago, um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we lived. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment, and it was an apartment that was actually only about three rooms. There were the two bedrooms, and then uh, one large room that was basically everything else. There was the kitchen, there was the den, uh, the breakfast room, all those type things. Now, in uh, Conway, we have a house. And there are three bedrooms. And the kitchen and the dining room and the living room, all those rooms are actually distinct They're their own kind of thing. And so it's very different. It's a very different living situation. Well, why do I tell you that this morning? Well, I tell you that because I want you to understand. I want you to enter my world for just a minute and realize that nothing that I owned was where it was supposed to be this week. Absolutely nothing. I'm thinking, where are the water glasses? They used to be above the sink to the right well, now they're above the sink to the left. That's where we're keeping them now. Well, where is my toothbrush? It used to be in a little cup. It was on the counter next to the sink. Well, we don't have a counter now. So the cup is in this cabinet we got from Target behind me. I have to look for it there. Or where are my socks? So they used to be in a little basket inside our closet right there on the right. Uh, they're not there anymore. In fact, they're not in any of the other closets. I don't have any socks anymore. They're all gone, apparently. That's what it feels like. Nothing that I owned was where it was supposed to be this week. See, when you move, you have to relearn where the important things are. You have to reorient yourself to your surroundings. Well, in this passage, Paul is showing us how to spiritually reorient our lives to a new reality. To so the reality that 
when we're justified by faith, we're not just made righteous in God's sight. We're also adopted into his family. We've moved, so to speak, and we live in our father's house now. And so in the age of the new covenant with the gospel fully revealed, Jesus has accomplished his purposes. We've gone from law to faith. We've gone from captivity to freedom. And now our lives deserve an overhaul. We have to relearn where the important things are. In other words... If you're looking for a sort of sermon and a sentence, it's this. When we're made sons of God by faith, our relationships are reoriented according to our new status. So we'll look at three relationships in particular. Our relationship to others, our relationship to the past, and our relationship to God. So let's look at the first of these, our relationship towards others. Well, most of your Bibles, verse 26 begins in the middle of a sentence, actually. So the first part of the sentence, verse 25 reads, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You heard that last week. And now we begin for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, this is a little bit like getting dropped from a helicopter onto a mountaintop. So the fatherhood of God is one of the highest peaks of Christianity. It's like up there in the Himalayas with with justification and sanctification and and all those doctrines. And so it's essential to who we are in Christ. And Paul has spent a lot of time walking us through redemptive history in Galatians up to this point. Even in chapter three, he's talked about Moses. He's talked about or Abraham, excuse me. He's talked about the book of the law. And now he's camping out in this new era, this new age that we're in that has been inaugurated by Christ. And he says, now that faith has come, Now that Christ has been crucified, now that justification by faith has been revealed as the only way to be saved. Now you see that by faith we're made children of God. So we don't become children of God by virtue of being created by him. We don't become children of God by virtue of our relationship, our physical relationship to Abraham. We don't become children of God by our works. We become children only by faith. If we believe God becomes our father in the truest sense. J.I. Packer has a beautiful quote on what this means. He says, everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And so you'll notice that that Packer sets the Christian understanding in opposition to the Jewish understanding, a new era of Christ in opposition to the old era of the law. And this is a really important distinction for us to understand. I'm sure you've talked about it in this series, but just to remind you, Paul is very deliberately here with his words crossing swords with the Judaizers. You remember the Judaizers was a sort of rogue element in the church in Galatia. And they believed that 
the new covenant was was less new and more so a renewal of the old covenant. And so that things like circumcision and things like food laws and Sabbath laws, that those things were still in effect in addition to faith. And so to the Gentiles, they were saying faith is good and you need that. But to become a Christian, you actually have to enter our world. You have to follow our ways. And so you see what Paul does. He sends this shot across the bow. He refutes and he says, no, actually, faith is the only factor is to your adoption. Faith alone is the keys to the castle. Now, imagine if the Judaizers logic played out in real life. Imagine if you were an orphan and you were up for adoption and your prospective parents came to you and they said, <clears throat> and they said hey, we're almost ready to pull the trigger. We have the papers. We're, we're almost ready to sign them. We just want to hear your singing voice a little bit. What if they said, we just want to see you do some push-ups, check your fitness levels. I mean, that's like stomach turning to us. We know that, that that's not how adoption works. It's just not. And so it's not about performance. Adoption is never about performance. And Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying your entrance into the family isn't based on your works. And because of that, the dividing line is not between Jews and Gentiles. It's actually between those who believe and those who do not believe. That's what separates. See, Paul is playing the role of Copernicus here. Copernicus was the guy who said that, who figured out rather that the, the earth actually revolved around the sun and not vice versa. So the Judaizers want to say that redemption revolves around them, that it revolves around the law of Moses. And Paul says, no, actually, Jesus is the son. And it's your position in relation to him that makes all the difference in circumcision and food laws. All the trappings of the old covenant are of the past. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And because of that, in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul is emphasizing that the pivot point here is Jesus, that God's redemption is no longer centered on Israel in the law. It's in Christ. It's broken out. It's been diffused and it's gone to all people. And this is very challenging for Paul's readers, because, in fact, Israel had in, in many ways become an insular community. They had isolated themselves and, and their isolation had given them a, a really deep-seated sort of disdain for people outside of their own ethnicity and even for some people inside their ethnicity. So here's what I mean. This is an actual prayer from a, a Jewish te- a book of Jewish teaching called the Mishnah. So this is a prayer that male Jews would have prayed in Paul's time. And it says, blessed are you, God, our Lord, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. 
Blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. So you see what Paul is dealing with. He doesn't just want to make the theological point that adoption is by faith. He also wants to collapse a whole set of ethnic and social barriers that are in the Galatian community. This is like the fall of a spiritual Berlin Wall between the Jews and the rest of the world. And he's saying no matter who you are, when you believe, verse 27, you put on, you clothe yourselves with Christ and his righteousness. He's your uniform so that the Gentile, the woman, the slave, all these people who are being marginalized in society are made one in Christ. So how does our adoption into God's family, reorient our relationship to others. It unifies us. It makes us one. And we have to be careful here because we want to weigh this with the rest of Scripture. Uh, One in Christ doesn't mean there are no distinctions anywhere. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's very clear that in the church, we're to honor distinctions in gender and distinctions in leadership and training. Uh, But Galatians is about justification. And in the realm of justification, the the whole field is utterly level. We are all sinners in need of a righteousness that is not our own. And so the gospel message is literally for everyone. That's why in Acts 16, in the earliest stages of the church, Luke tells us about three conversions, all three of which Paul is there for. The first is Lydia, a woman. The second is a slave girl. And the third is the Philippian jailer, a Gentile. So you see, it's the same three categories. And that's why standing before a holy God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. The gospel is for everyone. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the gospel requires you to reorient Yourself towards those around you, particularly inside the church, but also towards those outside the church. Inside, we have to remember that our attitudes towards others matter. So in the church, there should be no, well, there should be differences in gender and in age and maturity and roles. There should be distinctions, but there should be no dividing walls. There's no room in the body of Christ for for sinfully superior attitudes. How could there be? How could you be above another person here? You're both sinners and you're both saved by grace through faith. And so you're one, the young, the old, the wealthy, the poor, the strong, the infirm. We're all one in Christ. No matter what category you think of, we're all one in Christ. And so outside of the church, again, this means that the gospel message is for everyone. If our position inside or outside of God's family doesn't depend on anything but but grace by faith, then the message has to go out to everyone. It has to go to every corner. Imagine that the gospel was butter if butter was completely healthy for you. 
you would you would apply it liberally, right? You would you would slather it on all kinds of different foods. That's the gospel in society. It should go out everywhere. It should go out lavishly to people. To put it, to put it another way, my wife and I used to go to a very uh, beautiful old church in Charlotte, and there was a stained glass window, and it had a farmer, and he had a bag of seeds, and he was throwing the seeds. And it said, so beside all waters from Isaiah 32, the gospel is for everyone. Sin has leveled the field and now blessing and glory and sonship. All those are by faith alone. But faith also reorients us to our second point, our relationship to the past. So look at chapter four, verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The gospel changes how we look at our old life before we were in Christ. In verse 29, Paul calls believers Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so now he he illustrates that for us. So imagine a boy who has inherited a vast fortune. And even though the inheritance is his, he has no access to it. He owns the the fortune, but because he doesn't control the fortune, it's as if he didn't own it. So in a sense, he's held captive. He's under guardians and managers, people who actually uh, limit his freedom in many ways. And this, Paul says, is man's condition under the law. And this is what the Galatians want to go back to. So think back to when you were a child. Uh, The comedian Jerry Seinfeld has a, a great bit on this. He talks about how As kids, when we're growing up, everything is about up, wait up, hold up, let me stay up. But parents want the opposite. Calm down, slow down, put that down, sit down. Do you understand the difference? Parents have to impose these rules on children. In fact, they have to impose rules on almost everything. This is what Paul means here by the phrase elementary principles. He's talking about these simplistic sort of rules and regulations, the things that govern the world before Christ came in the old era. And Paul is saying that's like your childhood. And you can't go back to that. You can't give up your inheritance. You can't give up the privileges of the gospel because if you try to reach redemption by your own efforts, then you actually lose your freedom. Some Jews were particularly under this, this yoke. So you can think of the Pharisees and the scribes. These were people who had built up this body of tradition around the law so that it was like uh, God's law was like a building. It was hidden by scaffolding that they had built so that you couldn't even see it anymore. It was a heavy yoke on those people. But the problem is not just specific to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, it's not even specific to Jews in general. It's also specific to Gentiles. The Jews were enslaved to their own law and the Gentiles were enslaved to laws of their own, to pagan deities or to their own idolatries, to their own heart idols. And so you see the same is true for us. 
for anyone who relies on works of the law of any kind to be declared righteous or to gain significance in God's sight, this applies to them. Whatever it looks like, a job, maybe a marriage, an addiction, a food or a lack thereof, if it's not the gospel, it actually enslaves you. But now that Christ has come, and now that faith has been revealed, you can see those things for what they are. You can see that they're actually showing you your sin. They're showing you your need for Jesus Christ. And that is what the law did in Israelite history. Paul's saying, don't you see, it was meant to drive you to Christ. And now that Christ is here, it only takes faith to get the inheritance. So now by faith, we're reoriented to the past and we understand how the law enslaved us, how Christ rescues us. And now our third point, how this reality changes our relationship to God. Look at verse four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. For redemption to happen, it has to unfold in two ways. It has to unfold in history through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And it has to unfold in the hearts of sinners. People like you and me. And in these verses, Paul's talking about both things. First, he talks about the historical reality of Jesus. That after the time of Israel, after the law had fulfilled its purpose, that Jesus came. At that point, and only at that point, God sent his son into the world. Born of a woman, born under law. In other words, not only did Jesus come at just the right time, but he came in just the right way. He came as one of us, as a human. And he did it to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, could Jesus have redeemed us without being the son of God? No. He had to be divine to give his death infinite value. That's the value that it took to cleanse us of our sins. Could Jesus have redeemed us if he wasn't born of a woman? No. God's wrath toward mankind could only be satisfied by a man. Could Jesus have redeemed us without being born under the law? No. To satisfy the law, one has to be under the law, has to be subject to it. And so you see, every T was crossed, every I was dotted, and the plan was perfect. And Jesus worked it willingly, of his own accord. Scripture actually says that for Jesus to be born in a manger, to come down and become one of us, was actually humiliation. That's why the song says, Thou who was rich became poor, thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became this man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thy eternal plan. That's how things unfolded in history because of what Christ did in space and time. But redemption also unfolds in our hearts. 
Our relationship to God is reoriented. It's restored. It's set right by what Christ has done. And we're not just saved into some sort of realm of indifference. We're not second-rate citizens in the kingdom. We're not distant cousins in the family. We're sons or co-heirs with Christ, with all that He has. And because you're sons, verse 6 God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, I'm quoting here, the purpose of the father in sending his son and of the son in condescending to be born of a woman under law was that we might not only be delivered from the greatest evil, but might also be crowned with the choicest blessing. The choicest blessing. The fullness of God. His grace, His mercy, and His love. All of it. And it comes by the Holy Spirit. Luther said the law never brings the Spirit, but through Christ, God doesn't just dwell alongside us. He dwells in us. The Spirit guarding and guiding us and pointing us to Christ. Ministering to us. And counseling us. What else does the Spirit do? Well, he cries out and He causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Abba. It's a word of deep affection. It's a word of instinctual trust. It's not necessarily Daddy, but it's a name of intimacy. And then Paul turns and he shows us the whole spectrum in verse 7. Where we've been and where we've been brought. See, we've been reoriented 180 degrees from slaves to sons and from sons to heirs. From the farthest reaches of the law with no ability to get out of it on our own to Abba, Father. And if you're a believer today, if you've realized your sin and if you've turned to the Lord then all these things are yours. You're legally, you're relationally, really and truly your father's son. And no matter what your earthly father was like, you can rest in the fact that your heavenly father is perfect, that he worked a perfect plan to save you and that he loves you perfectly even now. And if you're not there this morning, if you haven't believed in Jesus and placed your sins on his shoulders then you should consider these things. You should think deeply and seriously, not whether, but about how you try to justify yourself, about what your own yoke under the law looks like. Because those things could never save you. Only Christ can save you. Now, how does a relationship like this play out in your life? Well, here's three things quickly. First, it means that you can speak freely to your father in prayer. We spent a lot of time this week with some really loving families from Christchurch Conway, and I've been amazed at how uh, free the children feel to speak. They know that no matter what they say, they could never say anything that would change their relationship to their parents. No matter if they say something silly, no matter if they even said something simple or mean-spirited, they're still their father's child. 
And the same is true for us. We can talk to our Father. We can lay our burdens down. He listens. And He loves us. Well, second, our adoption means that we don't have to wonder about God's motivation for the things that He puts in our lives. It's always for our good. It's always for His glory, no matter what. We don't have to worry that He has a trick up His sleeve. It may feel like it at times. We may even feel like it's impossible for anyone to find any good in a situation. But we can be sure that God will. And He does. That He appointed it for our own good. And third, it means that we're secure. Forever. Nothing can shake us from his grasp. Nothing can sever that relationship of a father to a child. Nothing can turn us back into slaves. We may sinfully act like slaves, and this is a warning if we do from Paul. And we may even be disciplined for a time by our father, but positionally we can never go back. Our father has us, he'll never let us go. So in conclusion, how does our adoption into God's family reorient our relationship to God himself? What well, brings us into the closest bond imaginable? The catechism asks, what is adoption? And it answers it this way. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we're received into the number and we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. By faith, we're a part of the number. We get all the privileges of the sons of God. Privileges that the law could never give us. Privileges that Christ gives us by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time to open your word this morning. We thank you that you called us here to do that. And we pray that your word would go forth. In our hearts, we pray that it would do its work, that you would send your spirit to teach us what it means to be sons of the Most High God. We need to understand that, Lord. We need to apply that in our lives. We need to feel that for any number of reasons. We pray that you would do that in our hearts, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, who bought it and made it possible. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.